0: Chaos. Woke up at 6 o'clock in the morning, chilling with coffee mugs, me and coffee chugs. Talking education all across the nation, pushing boundaries, thinking innovation. Chaos.
1: Hello everyone, how you doing? Welcome to another episode of Living on the Edge of Chaos podcast. We are in for a wonderful treat today. This is a, a conversation I've always wanted to have and uh, the timing is finally lined up to bring this guest onto the show. And I'm really excited uh, for what's to come because this, this individual here is one that continues to push our thinking, um, makes us rethink our practices and in a field where a lot of times we can get caught up in the shiny new objects and things like that and, and think everything is going to solve all the issues. Um, this individual is one that continues to ground us in 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 these principles and these ideas that we know work. And a lot of these things are are nothing new, but yet here we are still trying to make magic of of things that maybe doesn't even need to be magic in the first place. And I'm speaking of none other than than Gary Steger. And Gary, I know just in and of itself, your your backlog of the incredible volume of work that you have in education and the people you've worked with and things of that nature could completely fill up uh, this entire podcast. But I know you. If people listening in are familiar with you, they're familiar with your work with Sylvia uh, Martinez with the invent to learn. You've recently put together um, a new edition of the 20 things to do with a computer, which some people may not even realize is a thing, but now with the forward 50 with lots of incredible voices of people coming back to revisit some of these ideas um, that have been around for just a little bit of time. um, But for a lot of people could, could come across as, as groundbreaking. Um, And so I'd like for you to introduce yourself a little bit. Who are you? What do you do? What do you got going on? So people get um, a feel for uh, just the amount of credible stuff that you've you've been able to do.
0: Well, thanks for having me, Aaron. It's great to have the conversation with you. Um, I've been working in education for the last uh, 41 years. Um, I literally started very young and we could talk about that. Um, if you will, I've led... I, got, I started teaching teachers when I was about 19 years old, <laughs> um, and I'm an elementary school teacher by training. I led professional development, the first schools in the world where every kid had a laptop. Um, I created one of the first online master's degree programs. Um, it more, well, geez, I got to do the math, going on 30 years ago, and um, I had the great opportunity and privilege of working with the father of educational computing, Seymour Papert, for a couple of decades, and his colleague, Cynthia Solomon, um, for even longer. Um, and I'm an elementary school t- teacher by training, but I, I view myself as a teacher educator. I've taught every age from preschool through the doctoral level. I've had great opportunities to to not only visit places like Reggio Emilia in Italy, but um the great honor recently of actually teaching kids within one of their schools after about a dozen years of flying back and forth to Italy. Um, I never was permitted to enter a school when kids were actually in session. And then last year found myself, I um, actually earlier this year found myself um, in a school teaching kids for the day. Um and have a sort of weird background where I, to be a jazz musician until my conspicuous lack of talent caught up with me and been p- part of projects that won grammy awards and gotten to be friends with some of the greatest jazz musicians who ever lived and have, have sort of made the effort to know and indeed work with many of my my heroes and sheroes in the progressive education movement so a lot a lot of different experiences working with schools all over the world for for a very long time and a lot of folks I'm um, us more recently for um, being the authors of a book 10 years ago called Invent to Learn, Making Tinkering and Engineering in the Classroom, which is building a bridge between these two communities that care so deeply about edu- computing as a verb, as a, as an intellectual and creative endeavor, and making schools better places for, for children to learn um, and building a bridge between progressive education traditions and and what's possible when computers are are available to expand the breadth and depth and range of projects that, that kids and teachers could be engaged in. Um, and that's led to us publishing 15 or so books by other educators around similar themes. Most recently, the invent to learn guide to the micro bit. Um, and also published a, a few jazz books and some, some of which have won awards trying to give voice to folks who have interesting stories to tell that, that enrich our lives, make it more, Purposeful, meaningful, beautiful, um, and and challenge us to be better than ourselves.
1: I love that, and yeah, I mean your 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 collection of work is 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 incredible, and just the idea of constantly pushing out ideas and thoughts, and and keeping that in the forefront of what we we should be considering in education. And and I know I really came across your work with the Invent to Learn, and then it kind of go down that rabbit hole of all the different things that you start to realize that that you've been part of, and you know one of the things that you were talking there that i think is 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 interesting that i would like to explore a little bit is about that idea of computing as a verb and i'm sitting here thinking about my state in iowa or we are in the the second year of computer science legislation where we have high school computer science was required last year now by july we need to have a plan for k8 computer science and we're we're some states are are further ahead. Some states are further behind. But I would say in general, and I'm stereotyping here a little bit, computer science in the K-12 space for a lot of places is relatively new. And if they have been doing it, they're very just barely scratching the surface. And this is nothing new to the work that has been going on in your work in schools. And I know there are phenomenal examples. And so, you know, one of the things that I want to I want to ask is, as you talk about computing as a verb. And you see the landscape of of computer science and education. You know what are things that you're seeing that either we're, we're we're not thinking maybe the right way, or we should be looking back at to things that have been in existence. I mean, I know there's every state and everything has different variables, but like in that general sense, you know, I think about it in my role where I'm supporting 21 school districts, and <laughs> it's 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 a, it's the The wild west, and I don't mean that in a negative way of here's all these initiatives that districts have, and now we have this mandate and it feels like one more thing stacked in, um, where it it could just be a sloppy add on, um, if not done well. And that's one of my biggest fears that I have. And so, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on that? What are you seeing? What are you thinking? Um, When you just that kind of big ecosystem?
0: Sure. So so I'll, I'll, I'll start from the personal um, and and then sort of expand to kind of more of a policy view of this. Um, I got interested in computing because around 1975 at Schuyler Colfax Junior High School in Wayne, New Jersey, there was a nine-week required computer programming class with Mr. Jones. I'll say that again in 1975. Um, I grew up in a I grew up in a school district in North Jersey, about 23 miles from New York City, that got the first timeshare um, mainframe system and some terminals for kids to use. I believe in
1: 1964.
0: Mm. Um, and for the first time in my life, I felt smart and intelligent and creative because we didn't know what was impossible. We thought everything was possible. Um, Mr. Jones had to have been a terrific teacher because. He had scarce resources. We only ever had a teletype or two in a classroom, but he kept everyone engaged. There was a several-year period where we hadn't seen any software that wasn't created by someone we actually knew. Software wasn't something you could buy. Or I remember getting a manual for a piece of software that was available to us that was externally produced and looking at it like you know a scene from The Gods Must Be Crazy. What is this <laughs> thing? And, and riding my bike to the next town over to buy copies of creative computing magazine. And through from junior high through high school, I spent an enormous amount of time falling in love with thinking and, and, and programming and making things with code and challenged my friends and pulled each other up by our bootstraps. Um, and then graduated high school in 1981 thinking, well, that was kind of fun, but no one will ever use a computer again. That's ridiculous. And when I came home for, from christmas break my mother said get a summer job and i knew i could probably get a job working at a camp and i was a music major at the time um and i applied to a number of camps and no one would hire me to be a music counselor because i couldn't play the guitar um and i stumbled upon a place called deer kill day camp in Suffern, new york um in the new york city area and the director of the camp who is second generation it's now a third generation business um had a mini computer in his office that I'd never seen before. And he said, we've been thinking about teaching kids the program. We'd like to start a computing program at at our camp. Um, And could you write a program to do something? I wish I remember what the prompt was. And I hadn't used the computer at that point six or eight months and never seen that hardware before. And my program worked at an 18 and a half years old. I had a staff and budget was considered senior administration level at the, at the camp. And I began the next summer running the a, a program for kids. And a lot of my instincts um, turned out to to be good and have sort of shaped a lot of the work that I've done ever since. We didn't have any equity problems. We had the same number of girls and boys participating. Every kid got the experience, but then it was uh, there was elective time for kids who wanted more of it. I remember thinking to myself, the kids who are the best programmers are also the best swimmers and tennis players and arts and crafts kids. They're just interesting kids. Um, interestingly, my first uh, learning environment was a horse trailer that had some computers in it. <laughs> and they, they said after the first summer, it was so successful, they were going to expand my facility and I thought, oh, that's terrific. And I came back the next summer and they had built a porch onto the horse trailer next to the goat in the pond. And I had twice as many computers, which now had to be brought in and out in bad weather and twice a day for lunch and things like that. Um, and in in the intervening time between that first summer and the second, I actually started teaching teachers how to use computers in the classroom long before I, actually, I had a degree. So so now now to the policy part. Um computing was what we we did with computers because it had the greatest upside right that we were able to answer the question that seymour papert cynthia solomon have been talking about seymour particularly since around 1968 does the asking answering the question does the computer program the child or the child program the computer and I think the reason why this question is important is because it gives kids agency over an increasingly complex and technologically sophisticated world. And because I think the imperatives for um, preserving democracy are there, that at a time of rising authoritarianism and science skepticism and whataboutism and partisanship – I think having agency over an increasingly complex and technologically sophisticated world is important. I think the computer expands the breadth and depth and range of projects that are possible. Now, uh, while I'm simultaneously thrilled that schools have, and school systems have, have um, discovered the idea of kids computing, um, I have a couple of concerns. One is I think we need to be able to hold two thoughts in our head simultaneously. One is that all kids need some programming experience. And the second is some kids should choose computer science as their project. Mm -hmm. And my concern is, you know, you said you've done high school and then next year you're going to do elementary school. There are states and and nations on this globe that have decided that there's K-12 computer science requirements. And there's some unintended consequences of that. One is we have no idea what kids are capable of doing. So how are you going to have a K-12 curriculum when we've never seen a group of kids who had as much computing experience as I did in Mr. Jones's class in 1975, where between baking a souffle and and making a tie rack, some clever adults thought it might be worthwhile to have kids spend nine weeks learning how to program computers. So, you know, when we we started one-to-one computing at Schools in Australia, where every kid was given a personal computer in 1989, I got involved a few months later in 1990. The entire purpose was programming across the curriculum, making things, being engaged in deep inquiry, having agency over an increasingly complex, technologically sophisticated world. And even having that experience, I have no idea what kids would be capable of doing by the time they graduated high school if they had actually started in kindergarten or first grade so how do we have a scope and sequence for that it's it's kind of a fantasy it seems preposterous to me um and and it leads to like i said some unintended consequences like well if we've got 12 years to do this we can get around to it next year we could say manana um we could put if in second grade and then in third grade Mm. um we can we can invent a curriculum that um relies heavily on vocabulary and and less heavily on on actual fluency or or expertise or doing things you know i i believe the knowledge is a consequence of experience that's what piaget teaches us and and a great deal of what what's happening in schools even the ones that are well-intentioned at talking about computing or talking about computer science are offering something that you might call computer appreciation Mm-hmm. Um, this is <laughs> right. This is an idea that you know Alan Kay often talked about. You know schools are really good at teaching, you know fill in the blank appreciation, music appreciation, math appreciation. When when my my mentor and 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 hero and sort of you know spiritual guide Seymour Papert would ask, what can they do with that? That we want kids to be scientists rather than being taught science. We want them to be mathematicians rather than being taught math. We want them to be artists rather than being taught art. We want them to have these experiences. So in, in the absence of expertise or qualified teachers and with the presence of increasingly low expectations, um, we'll invent a whole lot of vocabulary words that kids will learn over a period of time. And that will that will masquerade as some actual fluency or um, intellectual development. So, you know, if, if I, I always tell teachers, if you see a, a computing curriculum that says first graders will ad- understand binary and identify it an al- or define algorithm, you should run screaming from it. Um, it. Nothing good will come from that. I was in my thirties programming computers, almost 20 years before I understood binary, I remember I was driving in the car. It came to me. I thought to myself, "Hmm, that's interesting." Now I understand binary, and that was literally the last time I used that idea. Right. Um, but it's but it's but it's endemic in in a lot of the sort of frameworks that I see. Now I was running around saying, "How can we have a computer science curriculum um, K twelve when we have no earthly idea what kids are capable of doing?" And I was self-confidently, maybe even smugly saying that, repeating it from (laughs) one place to another, from one podcast to another, when um, Cynthia Solomon, the mother of educational technology, heard me say it, and she put me in my place quickly, and she said, of course we know what kids are capable of doing. They're capable of surprising us. Mm. So how do you develop legislation and a K-12 curriculum that's geared towards kids surprising us? Yeah, that 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 has uncertainty built into it, because I think one of the problems that that's plaguing all of our educational efforts, and I think even to a certain extent, a lot of what's coming out of Silicon Valley um, is heavily rooted in misplaced certainty. (laughs) Chat GPT would suck a whole lot less if it was a lot more humble but it dispenses nonsense with, with remarkable certainty. And I think that mirrors a a great deal of our society and and certainly a great deal of education policy.
1: Yeah. And gosh, yeah. I I want to get to this topic of, of, of chat GPT here in just a second, but I want to come back to what you were just saying. Um, because you're just, you you hit on some just really powerful things. I love that, that phrase by Cynthia. We know that I, that element of surprise, or I always like to say, when we get out of kids way, like just let them work their magic If we have the the right learning conditions, you know, they will blow you out of the water. um, Once we create the space where it's not for compliance and obedience, but for, for true learning. So one of the things that, you know, as you're talking through this and I'm looking which at, you know yeah, which yeah, which,
0: which you know computer pro, computer programming is a utopian environment environment for that yeah yeah because because <laughs> right. because you're you're engaged in a continuous conversation with the machine and you're literally inventing and making things out of nothing right right
1: so then how do you get to that point so that's where like i i'm looking at trying to help districts wrap their head around their their k-12 plans that are in our legislation i'm trying to help educators that did not get an education to teach computer science and now uh, whether they're being valid told or whatever the the flavor of how it's going to come to fruition in their districts you know i and, and i i see this i agree so heartily with so much of of a lot of your ideas that i've seen you share where like the kids got to do the work on the computers, like and you know we i know we've we've had some discourse on like unplugged activities and things of that nature and you talked about vocab which i see happen you know quite a bit and i see this like like trying to figure out this this balance between where that starting point is when the educators don't have maybe the the confidence or the awareness to do it so therefore how do we get that into the space and i think about it you know even with your background with music even thinking about jazz and i'm i'm no jazz expert but that to be able to have improv, one, there's the ability of skill, but there's also a layer of confidence that I can see on this stage and I'm going to, to make music, right? And it's not I'm reading off a, a, a step-by-step direction set. And so I've, that is the space that I've been trying to wrap my head around of, okay, I can, I can have paper copies and these, these kind of activities, but if I were to have these kids put those same skills with the device, it's going to fall flat um like that transfer to to what the heart of it is. And so how how do you I mean you you run workshops, you 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 you're literally all over the world. And I know you have lots of these conversations from experts that get it and doing it to others that are just like what I said, like, oh my gosh, like how am I even going to begin? How do you wrap your head around that or what are some thoughts for people that are trying to figure out like I want to do a good job and just literally have no idea but yet I'm being told that in, you know, in six months time, I have to have computer science in my classroom.
0: Well, you know, just an aside first, you mentioned, you mentioned <laughs> unplugged, you mentioned unplugged activities. The first time I encountered computer science unplugged, I literally thought I was being punked. <laughs> um, you know, is there really a shortage of computers? Mm. Um, you know, I, I like again, you know, I, I the I worked in the first two schools and where we gave every kid a laptop now 33 years ago. I thought we'd be past this. Um mm-hmm. you know, I I was involved with the hundred dollar laptop project. I thought we'd be past this. Um, you know, I I I had a really fun experience just the other day. This doesn't answer your question, but I'll come back around to it. Um I've got grandkids who live in shanghai and because of the pandemic i haven't hadn't seen them in over three years and that was just brutal and we finally got to see them for a few days last month um and my older grandson just turned seven and he got an ipad for his birthday and the other day you know we go through this ritual on weekends where we deal with the time change and we try to facetime them and it's always like a you know a bad benny hill episode <laughs> um and and i've just been thinking whoa. whoa. Geez, at what point are, can these digital natives just call grandpa and have a conversation without it being a three ring circus and you know and and be scheduled ahead of time by you know parents and and the other day the the iPhone rang and it was Theo from his iPad because his dad had put his grandparents' phone numbers in it and he just decided to give us a call and and so while that was going on on my partner's iPhone I started. I started texting him from mine and, and he was like, what is this miraculous thing? <laughs> and, and then simultaneously talking with us and looking over his shoulder and asking his father, how do I type on this? How do I make exclamation points? Um, was well, all of a sudden he was concerned about punctuation and, you know, um, he's verbally bilingual now and he completely literate as a, as an English reader and, and writer, um, but you know, it, it it was as magical as the kind of first ex- encounters that I had with computers. Um, to be able to get it to as a to do things that I wasn't able to do before, you know, Seymour Papert said everyone needs a prosthetic. Um, it opens; it's a magic carpet ride onto you know a world of ideas and and experiences that that are wholly in a tradition of constructing knowledge with other materials. So to answer your question more directly, you know, physical computing has been a way of getting a lot of people interested in computing because you can make things that move and solve problems or make your room more beautiful. But we need to be more expansive in our view of prompts for that, that, you know, robotics went from being this this wondrous thing that could create beauty and whimsy and solve problems to – um a a sport in which your the boys in your school build a truck that kills some other boys truck from another school um and added all the least desirable elements of a learning environment to something that was that was quite powerful so it added competition and testosterone and um and right answer um Mm. to to something that was a lot more expansive so some of this is leadership um You know, Methodist Ladies College in Melbourne, Australia, which was the first school in the world where every kid had a laptop and was committed to computing across the curriculum in every subject at every grade level, beginning in 1989 and a couple months after that, a public school in Queensland, Australia, um, viewed computing as something that everyone should do all the time, that it's part of your bag of tricks that – you know, school leaders looked around, they were on a couple airplanes, they saw people with smaller computers, they thought, well, this is obviously the future, and this is a way for to amplify the potential of each kid. And why would we possibly stand in a way of this? Then they brought people like myself in who were enthusiastic and had creative ideas for projects in to work with teachers in their classrooms to create models of what was possible. And I remember after a year or, or two of a lot of rhetoric about what, what we wanted to have happened, not seeing a, enough of it actually in practice. And the principal saying to me, well, what what do you suggest? And I said, I need to get them out of here um, and show them that things need not be as they seem and and not interrupt them every 20 minutes with some distraction and let them work on the kinds of projects with the kinds of materials and technology that we want the kids to, to have experience with. And he said, okay, pick 30 teachers, um, book a place, go for three days. And and he said, You want all the beginners, right? I said, No, we want to build a culture, we want to have a community, we want to be able to sustain it if, if I'm not here. So I want veteran teachers and new teachers. And um and we ran a number of slumber parties, which that and an experience that I had working with two great educators named Dan and Molly Watt, one was who was part of the logo team at MIT in the in the 80s and who had a PhD in, in science. And one, his his partner Molly, who was a great progressive educator, um, used to run three week institutes for teachers mm-hmm. in a remote location in New England, where back at a time where teachers would go to a three week workshop, oh, right, right, <laughs> um, and fall in love and develop skills and you know make things and learn to learn and and that that's become the basis of of an summer institute that i run called constructing modern knowledge that's going into its 14th year where we have the luxury of time and a supportive faculty with diverse expertise and a a mountain of materials we ship about 60 cases of materials every summer and build a library and create a utopian space where teachers can reacquaint themselves with their own power as learners and then there are occasional conversations with people who are either doing great things with technology that they would have never occurred to them before might never have occurred to them before, or strong voices in in the history of progressive education um, that don't talk down to teachers, but that create the kinds of interpersonal experiences that inspire them to go back to the the classroom um, with a, a renewed commitment to, creating the kinds of experiences for kids that is what drove them to teaching in the first place. I mean, I got interested in educational technology. I'll be candid with you because in the early 1980s, that's where the smartest, most radical educators were. And and we could talk about that, but they came out of the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, and they, they were inventing some of this technology as well as, um, being involved in open education and you know, project-based learning. And they were rooted in Piaget and Vygotsky and Herb Cole and, you know, um etc. So, you know, I, when, as a young wannabe teacher, found myself in a room with these folks thinking, boy, I want a lot more of this. And I knew what it meant to be around smart people. And it made me feel smart and capable. And it inspired me to, to, be less certain in my own practice and to try things with kids um, and that's kind of been a curse of mine. I was thinking about this the last couple of days about you know man I, I wouldn't be so frustrated maybe if I hadn't been lucky enough to be around such great educators early in my career. Mm. Um, but that's also what keeps me going because I I, I know what what what's possible. I've seen it over and over again. And, you know, I was was in one of these sort of tedious, interminable, you know, education leadership events recently where, you know, we were being taught how to organize our calendars and use post-it notes and identify our goals. And, you know, one of the questions that that was used as a prompt was, you know, tell us about the last time you did something and thought to yourself, nailed it. Um, and whether I'm working with kids in Reggio Emilia, some of whom don't speak English and I don't speak Italian or, um, in the prison for teenagers where Seymour Papert and I created an alternative project-based high-tech one-to-one alternative learning environment for kids who have been sort of abject school failures and had lost the, the, the parental lottery, or constructing modern knowledge, where a preschool teacher and a high school math teacher work on a project for four days that takes my breath away, um, and and is on the frontiers of of science and engineering, um, or the class of kids I was teaching programming to via Zoom yesterday from San Francisco I've never met before. Um, I tend, you know, there's plenty of times where I I walk out of a class and think, boy, I really stunk up the place. Um, but I like to think I have enough self-awareness about that and it won't happen again tomorrow. Um, but more often than not, I'm, I'm not surprised by what kids are capable of doing. I'm not surprised by what teachers are capable of doing. I think, um, teachers are ca- capable of great confidence and competence and creativity when given the environment and the tools and the support and, and the materials and the high expectations that they'll do that. Um, you know the schools that were early on one to one you know they kind of did it for a, a variety of reasons but by and large it was an expectation that no this is something we're going to do we're all going to enter modernity together and um it was often teachers in non-traditional disciplines that we wouldn't have anticipated who became the greatest champions of what we were doing, French teachers and drama teachers and, um, and areas that would be objectively more interested in changing their practice or seem more technological, like math might've been less prone
1: hmm.
0: to, to do, to do creative things. Um, but having that sense that we're capable of doing great things, I think is, is the only expectation one can have. When you start by, yeah, start with the assumption that teachers or kids are incompetent, then all you can do is create vocabulary lists and let's go, let's raise test scores. We're the best, we're smart, we comply propaganda that you affix to the walls. So you delude yourself into thinking that something interesting is happening in your school.
1: Yeah. And I think, you know, as you're, as you're, talking through that like the word that comes to mind is permission you know it's how do we give our educators permission to showcase their professional expertise and the same thing for students in the classroom and you know i I look at like this this there's always this constant struggle whether it's a a new initiative or, you know, new standards or it's computer science or, you know, earlier, just a little bit ago, you referenced chat GPT and AI right now is it's, it's everywhere. You can't scroll for more than two seconds and see it. And I'm guilty of, of that myself. And, you know, I sit there and go like, there's all this stress and pressure, you know, at the time of this recording, I'm going to wrap up and I'm being asked to go, go work with um, in a zoom call to talk about, chat gpt and the worry about cheating and all these things and it's they're they're real feelings but i don't know that the feelings would exist if permissions for educators to do their craft and permissions for students to showcase what they're capable of were already in existence it just becomes you know part of the ecosystem you have conversation around and you maneuver and now i see this like weird slippery slope with this where you know, like anything with EdTech, the shiny new object, some people are going to run to it and, you know, put their stamp to it and rush out and do whatever things have always done. There's others that are trying to be proactive and then you've got others that are kind of hiding in a hole, not addressing it. And it's like, where do you find this this balance? Um, because it does feel, in this case, almost like there is a disruption of sorts, but no one can make any sense of it, even if they are acting like they're able to make sense of it, you know? So, I mean, as, as you, as you've watched these trends, I mean, here's just yet another trend, right? You're talking, you've been using computers for <laughs> for decades and here we are still, uh, even, even in schools that are one one kids aren't utilizing the computers in the way that they they could. Um, and here we are now with just another layer that I think just kind of throws the mix of fogginess, um, Into the pressures, I think, of that at the end of the day, the classroom teacher and the leaders, you know, and like, where do you even sort and sift?
0: Well, there's there's stuff that we have to fix structurally in schools and in teacher preparation, Um, you know, even even primary schools are now like little community colleges where every 15 minutes. Some bell rings and kids are interrupted and sent somewhere else to, and they're pulled out and they're seg- segregated and they're divided and they're leveled. And um, the consequences of that are really enormous and never discussed. Um, teachers don't get to know kids. Project, interdisciplinary projects are impossible. Connections are difficult to make. Um, kids never get to work on anything long enough to have pride of completion or ownership. Um, if something is tedious or challenging, you know it's okay. Just wait it out a few minutes. We'll, we'll, someone will ring a bell. We'll salivate and move on. Um, when I learned to be a teacher, I was literally at the very end in the mid '80s of when to be an elementary school teacher. You had to learn how to teach PE and art and science and social studies. We knew what projects were. We made manipulatives and we knew what the value of manipulative was by making it um, and using it with kids. Um, and you even had to play the piano a little bit, it was required. Um, and now everyone is sort of specialized in, in (laughs) non-specialties. You know, there's, right. There's, there's no greater expertise. You know, in in fact, it's probably the only time teachers have ever gotten over on the system where they say, well, I could be the reading specialist and this way I can, you know, perform the same trick five times a day, like five different tricks prepared, um, But I think the consequences of it are pretty severe. Now, when it comes to computers, you know, Papert taught us that if you can make things with computers, that you can make a lot more interesting things. You can learn a lot more by making them. We're adding colors to the crayon box. Um, When it comes to things like ChatGPT, um, you know, I do a lot of my best work as a wise-ass. And (laughs) um, I remember one of my favorite tweets ever was typing... Which should I ignore more, Google Wave or Google Buzz? Mm. <laughs> and I literally at gun at gunpoint I couldn't tell you at gunpoint I couldn't tell you what either of those did because I can't remember. Right. But I right. remember thinking everyone I know was talking about them, and I have a pretty good intuition this isn't anything worth paying attention to. Mm. And when it becomes something worth paying attention to, it'll take me four seconds to figure out what it is, and then i'll I'll pay attention to it. And and I won the exacta on that bet because neither of them existed, you know, 10 days later. Right. Um, I, I was excited by Chat GPT the first couple of times I used it. Um, and I'm less excited by it with each subsequent use. Aside from its bugginess, uh, the, the certainty of it is problematic. The fact that, you know, I asked it to tell me who I was and it gave me a biography that included me teaching at a university I've never taught at. And when I asked, how do you know that Gary Steger taught at Columbia University? It's, it became solicitous. It said, oh, I'm really sorry we got that wrong. Um, but it doesn't seem to correct itself. And I've had arguments with it about Maria Montessori. And, and um, I asked it to do something that was essentially second grade arithmetic. And it answered, it, it, it understood the problem. It set it, it back to me. And then it produced absolute nonsense. And when I fact checked it and, and told it that it was absolute nonsense, again, it sort of blew smoke up my ass and told me, You are correct, sir. And then gave me more nonsense. I said, No, it's still wrong. And it gave me more nonsense. Now, that's OK, because kids should develop, as Neil Postman said in the 60s, highly tuned BS detectors. Right. Right. One of the reasons you learn to program is because is to develop the sort of the habits of mind to be able to sort of question what's being presented to you and to smell a rat and to know that that doesn't feel right. Yeah. And if that doesn't feel right, then you don't need to be taught a whole lot of elaborate you know, Internet skills for disproving it. You know, you can use the Google and it'll take four seconds. Um, but developing that BS detector, I think it is is really important. So. The hype and hysteria, both the the overpromising and the paranoia and, and panic that's associated with innovations like ChatGPT, are pretty much two sides of the same unproductive coin. Mm. Um, and one of the reasons why I think schools are alarmed by ChatGPT is, um, ironically, it does the things that school cares about really well. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and and that's sort of the low hanging fruit. It's the dumbest forms of of human expression. If you want a five paragraph essay on the virtues of being a spy in Orwell's 1984, it's really good at crapping that nonsense out, right? Um, but it but it it doesn't lead anyone to ever question why do we teach this at all? Why is this important? You know, if if you can ask it to write a poem um it writes a poem and what i find though is that if you ask it to write a poem and then you say could you use a little more elaborate language or that's too flowery or it should be a little shorter or more or a little longer or more concise um or more abstract or more have contain more nuance um asking it to improve your poem develops all of the sort of intellectual skills that would justify teaching poetry in the first place that very few kids ever experience because being told to write a poem, isn't the same as being a poet. Mm. And, um, 99 out of a hundred teachers, I suspect wouldn't be able to give you an answer beyond it's in the curriculum for why we make kids write poems. True. Uh, um, you, know, and certain, you know, and so when people say, well, are you, are you really suggesting we should teach every kid to program? You know, that's outrageous. You know, not everyone needs to learn how to repair an engine to drive a car, which is an incredibly terrible analogy for any number of reasons. Um, you know, my first question is, well, why would you even consider, why would it even occur to you to deprive another generation of kids over of agency over an increasingly complex and technologically sophisticated world? Um, but beyond that, there are a million and one arbitrary things in a curriculum that no one ever challenges, like haiku. You know, show of hands <laughs> if you were in the meet. Show of hands <laughs> if you were in a meeting where it was determined that every kid on earth would learn to haiku. What what would be the global catastrophe if we removed haiku from the curriculum? Right. Um, but we teach every kid that probably multiple times because someone decided to. So it's just as arbitrary as any other decision the difference is um you know I, I remember angus king the governor of maine who was is deeply flawed and has terrible views on education and a lot of other issues but when when he proposed that every kid in maine should have a laptop and someone wrote him a, a letter saying you know why don't you just spend the money to buy every kid a chainsaw um he said well you know a chainsaw maxes out at fifteen dollars an hour the laptop maxes out at Bill Gates. Mm. Um, we, we, you know, it's not an unreasonable, you know, it, it's a, it's a kind of utilitarian capitalistic answer. Um, but, but why not teach kids things that have infinite potential that help them continue to learn for, for a lifetime that allowed, allowed them as I did in Mr. Jones's class to feel smart for the first time. Yeah. Um, I, I know that what happens in my head when I'm trying to write a computer program is similar to when I'm trying to get my car out of a locked parking garage, or a, an appointment scheduled with the doctor's office, and I'm in voicemail hell, um, or when I was composing music that the sort of same you know gerbils were running on the same treadmill in the same way in in my sort of mechanical brain. As as when I'm when I'm writing a computer program, it's it's served me well, and it, and it it seems quite reasonable that maybe every kid should spend nine weeks in a class like Mr. Jones's. Maybe we don't do K twelve, uh, you know, or or we say in third grade we're going to give every kid nine weeks of an intense experience where they develop sufficient fluency that they can continue learning how to do things with computers on their own and that can serve them through the rest of their educational experience. But like I said when you when we sort of <laughs> divide it by 12 it requires someone with a much better crystal ball than I have.
1: Yeah, you hit I mean I think that's you know as you're as you're talking through that then I'm just replaying conversations and and meetings that I've had and, and we're trying to figure out what it looks like. And I think you've really hit, I mean, for me, that idea of like that fluency versus, which I don't think any of us are directly doing like checking off the box because there's this legislation where we're going to do this, these X amount of standards in first grade and X amount of standards in second grade. And then we've accomplished what we needed to, and it's going to be good. And there's, but there's huge time gaps and it's, you know, it's not fluid within the ecosystem of the school day and how do we how do we integrate it so there is meaning behind it and they and they do have see the value in it and it's not just something that happens now because we quote unquote feel we have to and like that's where and whether well, we're talking well computing you know, Matt, or any subject that's where you start to lose the luster of like how do you Approach it with inquiry and wonder and and get excited about what are the possibilities and and let's go find out together versus like, oh, today here is the thing that we've got to
0: teach. Let's go. well, so uh, you know I've been been running you know this uh, class online that called Clever Computing for Children. that's not just me teaching some kids how to program, um, but it's me teaching a class of kids how to program while simultaneously mentoring their teacher to help them observe what's happening inside the heads of the kids and to watch me teach with minimal vocabulary and I am I'm, I'm a strong believer in less us more them anytime you think you should intervene on behalf of an educational transaction, you should step back and ask yourself, is there less that I can do and more that they can do? Um and and when to push kids and when to back off and to recognize that not everyone's at the same at the same place at the same time, but they can all be creating and, and learning from one another and feeling successful. Um, and, and you know, the low-hanging fruit for that is computation and math. You know, there's, there's no greater gap between a discipline and the teaching of that discipline as this thing called mathematics and this thing called math. And math is what schools do. Um, in 1989, so you do the math, um, it's a while ago, the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics in a particularly lucid period said that 50% of mathematics has been invented since World War II. Right now, I was in a meeting last week where I heard the chief academic officer um, in a $6 JCPenney suit for one of the largest school districts in America say that every child learns in exactly the same way, and there is no room for innovation. Um, literally, and two plus two is always four, and we learn to read through 37 step systemic phonics. Um, and I, I, you know, I was, I felt. I felt my partner, Sylvia, <laughs> behind me saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. And I was seething and shooting sort of laser eyes at this dude. And and thankfully, the second he, he, he finished speaking, he hailed a cab and left skid marks to get out of the room, as they always do. Right. Because they don't have to defend any of the nonsense, the dangerous, intolerant, unconscionable, reckless, baloney. That's being turned into to policy. Um, the NCTM, you know, hard, hardly a radical organization, said that half mathematics has been invented since World War II, and none of that's in the curriculum. And and the reason, and that mathematics that had been invented since World War II, is the result of two two societal events. One, the social sciences increasing demand for number. So so the same clowns who talk. Ev- endlessly about evidence and data again don't think anyone should be able to produce it or interpret it apparently because we're right. going to deprive them of, of the sort of intellectual skills required to do so and to, to question it like i do when chat gpt makes up something about montessori or says i taught at the wrong school or can't do second grade arithmetic um and and computing right you know the, computers exist because we wanted to be able to send missiles Far away with with precision, and if it was fifty percent in nineteen eighty nine then that, that percentage has gone way up, and yet it's not in the curriculum right and it's forms of mathematics like cellular automata and chaos and fractals and um, complexity itself and um, that aren't anywhere to be found in the curriculum, and just because they're new doesn't mean they need to be relegated to post postdoc math majors um there are things that i do with computer programming and number theory with third or fourth graders that allows them to experience the frontiers of mathematics and after kids spend a couple of hours joyously not going to the bathroom not asking to use the pass you know collaborating challenging one another giggling sweating wiping the, the sweat from their brow cuz they've never done so much thinking i i i tell them This is an unsolved problem. Oh, and by the way, um, there are people who say goodbye to their loved ones in the morning and go up to offices and play with problems like this with computers. They're called mathematicians. Um, And you're a mathematician, too. Um, And their teacher gets to see that it wasn't just the stereotypical kid from a certain ethnic background who's good at math who got something out of this experience, but the little pudgy kid with the chocolate smeared on his face, who's never been good at much of anything, has their eyes lit up like saucers because they can't believe that every time they have a hypothesis and they can communicate it to the computer, it's either, it's either supported or leads them down a rabbit hole of something else. They want to investigate that the computer makes these kinds of experiences possible. And it allows kids to be mathematicians. It creates the math land that, that, Papert started talking about more than 50 years ago where you learn mathematics as as fluid and fluently as you would by learning French by living in France, which is very different from whether or not you learn algebra sitting in an algebra classroom. No one no one ever says that. Um, you know, you don't have a head for French if you live grew up in Paris. But but we have all kinds of mechanisms for saying kids aren't good at math. And, and I was one of them. I went from the invited to be in the gifted, fast, accelerated math track that was going to go from seventh to twelfth grade in seventh grade to the lowest algebra section in ninth grade. And despite having taken algebra multiple times, never taken trig, never taken calculus, I have a PhD in science mathematics education. But more <laughs> importantly, but more importantly um, I've been able to spend time with some of the world's greatest mathematicians and carry on reasonable conversations with them, consider some of them friends. And it occurred to me that I've never once felt stupid in a conversation with people like Stephen Wolfram or John Conway or Marvin Minsky or my friend Brian Silverman or David Thornburg, but plenty of math teachers made me feel stupid. And... And a lot of those, a lot of a lot of those math teachers were folks who were good at school math, who thought they they'd be they would study math at college, and then they found out what mathematics was, and thought, "Ooh, I've made a vocational error," um, and then they became math teachers who just sort of replicated the kind of sad experience that they had as students. Yeah. Um, so. You know, so you know, you want to, you want to get, you want to kill two birds with one stone. You want to get more bang for the buck. You know, mathematics is a way of making sense of the world. Computers are a way of making mathematics. Mathematics education should be inseparable from computing. And yet, I haven't looked at the statistics in a while. There was about a twenty-year period where, when kids were surveyed, what class do you use computers in? The none to rarely dominated in mathematics class. Um, which you know you would think obviously computers would have something to do with math, but it didn't have anything it didn't have anything to do with math instruction right right and and so when my approach is to not only create computational experiences where you're making things and and dealing with number and forming hypotheses and using variables and conditionals and such and logic, um, but to do so across the curriculum, and then that's a invitation to um engage in more interdisciplinary projects to be involved in making things to be able to to solve problems across uh, you know a variety of domains and, and that becomes encouraged you know and exciting to teachers and they and it's more efficient because you can combine you know multiple disciplines and make more sense and i mean you know and i i, I look for these opportunities everywhere i mean i there's a book Scott Galloway, who's a business mm. professor, popular podcaster, fellow smartass, <laughs> um, has a New York Times has a New York Times bestseller called "Adrift: America in a Hundred Charts." And you know, you turn to, you know, you turn to a page, and there's a chart and a and and some description of it, and you know, and then some discussion about what this means for society. And I see this, and I think to myself. Wow, that's a kind of cool project, right? Yeah, our our school in a hundred charts, our community in a hundred charts, our classroom in a hundred charts, climate change in a hundred charts, uh, affordable housing, and whatever area of concern in the curriculum in any subject, in any locale, and one of the things you learn from the the great progressive tradition and from purveyors of that tradition like uh, like the educators in Emilia is the power of lots that when you walk into a classroom and say I need a hundred of these then first of all the kids have to deal with division of labor and they start thinking there's not one right answer because there's only twenty of us and we're gonna need a hundred <laughs> right. or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then right and and so like you know I, I used to joke 30-plus years ago that all we did with computers in schools was word processor database spreadsheet. It used to get get said in one syllable, um, one breath. And that's not so funny anymore because now we don't do the database or spreadsheet part at all. And I don't see a lot of evidence that kids are doing any writing. Um, You know, if if the computer was good for anything, certainly word processing was revolutionary, but I don't see any despite the golden age of print on demand and blogs and infinite audience and for your work and i don't see an explosion of kids writing just like you know we went through a a, a little a brief period of of people making movies and every kid making you know an insufferable one minute claymation of you know two dinosaurs fighting or something i don't even see that anymore very much right right um so what are they doing? And more importantly, what can they do with that? I remember I had, you know, we were we were running this this nutty project inside this incredibly troubled prison for teens where you know Amnesty International is accusing the state of Maine of torturing kids. And Seymour Papert and I and a couple of colleagues, you know, wandered into this place and naively thinking, well, let's create the world's greatest progressive classroom. Um and I remember having a conversation that even as radical as I am, um, Seymour said, what are you thinking about doing with the kids next? And I still kind of had my teacher hat on. I said, oh, we're going to do some geography. And he shot back. And what can they do with that?
1: Mm.
0: I thought, oh, that's a really interesting question. And he, he saw me on my back foot a little bit. And he said, I didn't mean to rattle you. Um, but what you do with kids should have a reasonable chance of leading to a bigger question or or deeper understanding. Um it should allow you to do something that you couldn't have done before it, and if not, why bother? Um, so, you know, may, describing something in charts and and collecting some data and crunching it and making it visually attractive and sharing it with everyone and and using it for for purposes, a reg, a normal teacher ought to be able to make sense of that when presented with the the ability to sort of think in in, in such a way.
1: Yeah, no I love that. I mean I think about, you know, that that whole integration approach or just creating authentic experiences built around the questions that the kids have. Like we don't we don't need to go real far to figure out what's meaningful to kids when we have a room of kids, we can ask them and we can use that as the platform. And I mean, I think about a lot of what you're just talking about, that, that integration across disciplines and that chart of that book adrift, which is awesome. Um, You know, and I think about how often math does get left out of the equation. Um, Anytime we, we look through figuring out if indeed we're not teaching in isolation. And I think one of the things from with COVID and this, this, this storyline that kids are behind and all these types of things is we've moved further backwards into like teaching these isolated pockets and it's, it's, it's not what works, but yet there's like this crazy fear that every minute now must be completely planned for chiseled out, done this, 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 and we're going to move in this way. And um, it's a, I watch it unfold. And as you try to sit there at the same time, their mission and vision statements and the things that they say is they want creativity and critical thinkers and problem solvers and you know insert insert word choice here uh the the systems that are going into place do not even allow for that, and so there's like this just massive disconnect that's that's happening and that seems that's one of my my biggest fears as you you talk not just with people i support locally but just in online calls and conversations and networking through the channels like you you continue to see this huge disconnect and as things continue to evolve and society figures out things like those are the skills that we we all know i mean and this is nothing earth-shattering that we need more and more of and yet we're doing less and less of it
0: in schools well and you know a few few thoughts one is if you if you tackle a big hairy project like the that sort of prompt idea that i just shared with you um i think you should also have the expectation that it becomes a book and yep. that the book is good and that it's edited by kids and that it's attractive and that other people might actually be interested in reading it now so the way i would approach that was to say it's going to be a book and who's going to be who who's going to edit it and who's going to do layout and 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 shift that responsibility to kids. Um, not, you know, one of the things that's great about this age because of computers is you don't have to run everything through the school copying machine, and it doesn't always have to look like shit. Right. They could produce something that matters to them, and it, it breaks my heart that kids aren't producing things that matter to them. Um, you know, at the same time, I had Mr. Jones's class. I was not only working on the official school newspaper, but we were running an unofficial school newspaper. Until the advisor of the official school newspaper followed me into the boys' room, threw me against the wall, and told me he'd kill me if we published another issue. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but you know, that was at a time where it, to publish a school newspaper or an, unof- an unofficial school newspaper, you had to have access to a printing press. It was hard. Yeah, we didn't have computers, but we had something to say, right? So we've made kids sort of you know, dependent and apathetic and, and lazy while simultaneously, you know, putting all the tr- the propaganda up on the walls to ugly our school environment about how we're all seekers and yearners and doers and, you know, achievers and all that that other nonsense. Now, I think there's also a subtle distinction there, which is that everything you do with kids that's in the spirit doesn't have to result in a pageant. Right. You know, I think one of the the ideas that's counterproductive to come out of things like high-tech high, places like high-tech high, is the sort of big ta-da, the every two weeks, four weeks, nine weeks, there's a show where every kid shows their work. Now, certainly concerts and shows and science fairs, the kids exceed our expectations and they rise to the occasion and they impress their friends and parents, but but that's an unsustainable burden for the adults, if nothing else. And not everything... takes nine weeks or not you know i I was consulting with a school that said the kids are going to build solar ovens for six weeks what if it doesn't take six weeks what if you realize you've run out of ideas what if it sucks what if some kids (laughs) aren't interested what you know um so you build this new artificial structure to replace this other one and it's just as artificial and maybe just as counterproductive so um knowing that you can have that great quiet moment where a kid says, hey, I get this, or look what I did as they're walking out of the classroom, or hey, you know, I was thinking that that could be as, as beneficial as, as, as the big pageant. Um, But by the same token, um, if you're writing something, someone might want to read it. And if someone wants to read it, then it should be spelled correctly. And it should be edited. Um, And you might want to make it visually attractive if that, that adds Value and doesn't require a disproportionate amount of time. Um, I, I, I started saying earlier, and I, I, I think I lost my train of thought. That um, you know, schools are hysterical about ChatGPT because they view it as cheating. But you know, it's like, well, I used to say any teacher could be replaced by a computer, probably should be. Um, any assignment that could be completed by an algorithm probably should be, and the reason why people are hysterical is because it does the things that school values and much of many of the things that school values probably aren't that valuable. Right. And if you can make simple things easy to do, you make complexity possible. So if we can, if we can do simple things, then, then let's move on to some, some more sophisticated stuff. So I have insanely high expectations for what kids and teachers are capable of doing. You know, someone someone got mad at me, and I'm going to write something about this at some point. Um, because I said, you know, if you're one of these groovy, edupreneur, futurist, know-it-alls who now have not only innovator, but AI and education expert in your LinkedIn bio, um, you should read this article by Stephen Wolfram who's arguably the most important living mathematician, computer scientist, a guy who says things like, I'm fundamentally rethinking the basis of physics and no one giggles because he's probably onto something. Right. Um, You know, who was a MacArthur genius, you know, at 19 and, you know, PhD around the same time and, um, and invented the tools being used by all mathematicians and scientists to do serious work. And incidentally, donating dozens and dozens of hours a year to talking to kids online about math and science if they're interested. Um, He wrote an article explaining how ChatGPT works, and it's 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 rough. It is hard. It is rough. (laughs) But okay, so read the parts you can understand. Get your heads around some of it. Maybe just realize. It's complex, and complexity is a good thing to have a sense of. It's actually an entire branch of 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 mathematics, um, but it's also a sort of a way to go through life with some humility and 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 as a lifelong learner. And someone fairly prominent really came down on me hard with "How dare you?" First of all, I didn't name anyone as the you know groovy rock star know it all futurist entrepreneur. Um, um, but how dare you, you know, expect teachers who are, you know, overburdened and blah 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 to, to, you know, tackle an article like this? And, you know, my response is, how dare you think the teachers are too stupid, right? Um, and incompetent and lazy? What do you? you know, no, I'm not the one saying mean, bad things about teachers. You are by thinking they're incapable of wrestling with powerful ideas. Even if only to say oh, I'll read a couple of paragraphs of this and maybe I'll come back to it later um and so you know I want I want kids to to have that sense too, and um you know come- come back to computing, you know, I'm teaching this class of kids online, you know, and the teacher pulled my coat virtually to say a couple of the kids are concerned that you know they want to use other environments, which was code for we're working in a block based environment, some of these kids think that. That that's for babies. And I just know that's what they're thinking. Yeah. And and so, you know, first thing I said to the teacher was, you know, there's a growing body of research that says that block-based programming isn't for babies, that it's that it allows more diverse, democratic, um, equitable community of kids to have serious computational experiences. Um, the languages are getting more powerful. Um, you know, SNAP was created at UC Berkeley. It's used in their um freshman computer science courses at one of the best, you know, computer engineering schools in the world. Um, There's an AP computer science principles course called beauty and joy of computing that had a little to do with They use a snap as the programming language. So if you care about AP, which I'm sure these kids do, I couldn't give a rat's ass about it. Um, (laughs) And, 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 and took, and took zero AP classes in school. Um, And, and my, my kids took between zero and zero plus one AP classes, you know, in school and all went on to university and had productive lives. Um and um in fact my 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 kid who's been had arguably the most interesting work life of my three adult university educated children um and had a steady job and full employment and health insurance and an apartment of her own since the second she graduated college was the art major. Mm. Um, and there was a rather contentious period where she said she was putting together her 10th or 11th grade schedule, and we said, what do you want to take? And she said, "Art." we said, great, take art. And she said, oh, they'll be mad at me. What do you mean they'll be mad at you? They don't want me to. They want me to take more math. And we live in Southern California where apparently you know algebra is taught in utero, and somehow kids have satisfied all the high school math requirements by the time they leave eighth grade, which is kind of interesting because how is that a high school requirement then? And um, and we said, well, now take art this year. And, you know, next year you'll have more time in your schedule. You can go back to math if you want. And this caused like just crazy phone calls with school guidance counselors. And we recommend against this because we find if the kids don't take math, it leaks out. And I said, well, I don't subscribe to the leaks out theory. And um, anyway, you know, my daughter got accepted to you know, seven of the best liberal arts schools in the country, went to Bard College, upstate New York, which is like this pantheon of intellectual inquiry and creative expression. And after a semester of taking humanities classes and having Enigma written as her grade in one of the classes, she said, I need to take some courses with numbers because these these humanities people are making me nuts. And she took calculus of her own free will and volition. And calculus teacher came in and said, I love this subject. You're going to love it. I'm glad that you're here with me. And we're going to have a great time together. She got an A in university calculus, which she would have never gone near again. If she had taken it in high school, right? Um, and you know, going back to the, to the earlier problem, um, so you know, we we know this is far afield, but you know, all these this, these articles about teen depression and blaming screens. And I have a slide that I've been using in presentations with a picture of Dr. Seuss's Lorax on it, and it says, "I speak for the screens; for the screens have no tongues." The screens haven't made school insufferable for kids. We have. Mm. The curriculum has. There's a fundamental difference between the way I proposing using screens as intellectual laboratories and vehicles for self-expression, and the way a parent might use an iPad to shut a kid up in an IHOP. Uh, and and we we need to be able to differentiate between those two things. And so coming back to these kids who are worried about using baby languages you know my assignment for them for next week was i told show them the snap website and i said look at this and find find interesting things to share with me so so they can convince themselves that that maybe this is complex right maybe yeah. there's maybe there's something i don't know how to do because i'm i'm at that point and i don't like being in with kids where i want to say it's good for you but they don't really understand variables yet and they don't really know how to put a procedure together or debug it and if they would just hang out with me in turtle art for a few more weeks they'd really have a solid understanding of this but instead we're going to do some list processing next week and start playing with language because i t- i promised them i can get the computer to insult them <laughs> and, and and that's something that you know these sort of middle-aged middle middle age middle school boys will find find interesting right 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 um and again to sort of give you a sense of you know how the enormity of the rock we're pushing up the hill came up with this idea of clever computing for children this whole model i come in synchronously once a week to teach kids and to propose challenges they work on them all week and then we get back together and i'm mentoring their teacher in between and i have continuous conversations with the kids um Schools hate the me having continuous conversations with the kids part. They make it almost impossible, right? Yes. So we can we can we, we can we can do one percent of what was possible because I can't keep challenging the kids. The kids can't message me at three in the morning because they're in the middle of solving a problem and they they can't go to sleep because they really want to debug something, which is where all the really powerful learning happens. Um, and it hadn't occurred to me that when the school made this an elective uh, 10 boys would put their hands up, you know, so, you know, I, the kids, kids meet me on zoom. And the first thing I said was, what have you done with the girls? Um, and if the school wants me to continue this or we do it again, I suspect I might have to call it clever computing for girls or clever computing for girls and boys, or do some different marketing. Uh, because that's sort of, Structural biases in schools are such that yes. they're not like what I had at the summer camp in 1982, or at the prison in 1999, or at Methodist Ladies College in Melbourne, Australia in 1989, where they committed to every kid having a computer and programming across the curriculum. Which is another really interesting piece, you know, bit of historical trivia: the first school in the world where every kid had a computer and was programming was a girls' school. <laughs> Um, So, you know, I don't want to I don't want to be saying to these kids, you know, do it because I said so or because it's good for you or because you need it. I'll just sort of zigzag in a different direction, recognizing that they're just dealing with external pressures of what it means to program computers or what's cool or tough or challenging, even though, you know, they can't actually do anything.
1: Right. Well, it goes back to that less of us and more of them and allow them in that, that discovery to find out, you know, like, how do we poke and prod to allow them to have that aha moment themselves that, you know, will be there. Just like you said, if if given the time to just spend time with them and allow them to tinker and find and explore and and, and find their voice.
0: Um, yeah. And, and, and for, and for all this instruction and for all this policy, I mean, I'm sure you confront this on a regular basis. Um, people can't actually do very much with computers and you run hands-on workshops. And my partner, Sylvia, you know, comes out of aerospace and software and video game design. And she just continuously marvels at the fact that teachers can't use their track pads, um, let alone knowing where they save the file. And, you know, copying and pasting is sort of the postdoc level of, of computing. And it's, well, because they've never had any. Again, you've never had any reason to, you know. So, so if ChatGPT can be used by a school principal to send me a welcome letter at the beginning of the school year that doesn't have spelling errors in it, I'm cool with that. Go for it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know the the you know the 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 seventy five hundred ways in which you're going to punish my child between now and June. ChatGPT can do that without misplaced punctuation and using the correct form of two or your <laughs> cool. Yeah. Go for it.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. So good. You know, Gary, I want to be respectful of your time because I could just sit here and talk with you all day long. And uh as always, you give me a lot to think about. And I know for the listeners as well. And your voice is is so appreciated in the education landscape. Um, you know, because I think is. Whatever the, the flavor of the month, day, year tends to be in education, a lot of this stuff is not revolutionary. It's coming back to the basics, the things that you and all your friends the network and a lot of people have known for a long time. The bigger question is, at what point do we start to implement those things? But I always appreciate you being an advocate for what matters most for kids and for learning and, 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 and for the profession. And, uh, you know, you are one of the very few voices that is willing to stand up time and time again and, uh, you know, kind of keep things in check and and make sure that, you know, all perspectives are taken into account. So I, 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 I know for me, I'd like to say thank you for that because it's, it's not always easy and, there's not a, not a lot of you, um, you know, yeah. as, as things come through, but I think it's, it, it's, it's such a, a critical voice to have because those are the things that we want to instill in our students to be able to articulate their thoughts and ideas and to be able to understand the complex world and how do we sift through all the ideas and whatever is being shared, you know, good, bad and indifferent. And so um, I really appreciate this conversation and I appreciate what you continue to do year after year um, for education.
0: Well, thanks for that, Aaron. It's it's great to talk to you. I you know it just occurred to me that there's a difference between old and timeless, mm. and you know certain things are timeless. Yes, and um, I, I'm reminded of one of my friends and mentors and heroes, Jimmy Heath, who's one of the great musicians in jazz history. We lost a few years ago, and he used to say all the time, "What was good is good." Um, And the reason why we created 20 things to do with a computer forward 50 was because in 1971, Seymour Papert and Cynthia Solomon um, told us what kids were capable of doing with computers then. And if your school is looking for a tech plan now, you might just pull out that 52 year old document because a lot of schools couldn't demonstrate the kids have the competency and fluency now to do the things that they said in 1971, kids are capable of doing. And in that 30-page document, they talked about one-to-one computing and physical computing and the maker movement and uh, computer science for all, and it's kind of all in there, but it was it was embedded in a sense of wonder and a progressive tradition, and it's worth recognizing that we stand on the shoulders of giants. What was good is good. We don't have to, to reinvent er- everything. We have continuously exciting opportunities and tools and technologies available to us, to amplify human potential, to go further than we could have gone on our own. Um, but it requires us to, to recognize that teacher working conditions are student learning conditions and that we, we want to have a democratic society in which people can make informed decisions and have agency over, over their world. And one of the ways we get there is by developing you know computational fluency that helps us not only differentiate truth and, and fiction, you know, fiction. um, But to, to navigate an increasingly complex, complex world. Yeah. So I I thank you. And, and just a a quick plug, um, you know, the sort of my, my life's work all comes together in a summer Institute. That's an act of love and lunacy called constructing modern knowledge. It's happening again this July 11th to 14th um in manchester new hampshire four days uninterrupted a mountain of materials a remarkable faculty of great practicing educators and an opportunity to, to interact with with folks who are just doing extraordinary things with their lives who we bring in as guest speakers not to talk to people but we want people to be able to say they've had a conversation with they got to know and nothing nothing brings me greater joy than finding out three or four years after the fact that some teacher had their life changed because they went for soup dumplings with the, their director of the Reggio Emilia Foundation or had a conversation with a MacArthur genius or got to hear jazz musicians perform 10 feet away from them for the first time and think about what it meant to be a musician and how they, they come to do what it is that they do. Um, and so we, we run the thing without sponsors. There's no exhibit hall. It's all entirely focused on creating the kind of learning environment for teachers that we would hope they would create for their, their students. And, you know, the evidence that I have that it works is um, not only the remarkable projects that people create year after year after year that that take my breath away, but we've had some educators return nine times. Um, and it can't happen without participation. I spend an inordinate amount of time and effort trying to, to get people to know about the event and and to to consider coming. So I hope if you're interested in the kinds of stuff we've talked about today, you'll take a look at constructingmodernknowledge.com and, and join us in what's usually seasonably cool, Manchester, New Hampshire, great little new England city for, for a four day learning adventure of a lifetime this July 11th to 14th.
1: Yeah. Well, we'll definitely get that <clears throat> linked in the show notes and, I mean, it's, I know that has always been a bucket list item of mine. And I think if anyone besides going to the website, just search for it and you can see testimony upon testimony and blogs and stuff from people who have experienced it. And I think, you know, what, what you create there is that, that, that space for vulnerability and that opportunity for what matters most, which is that, that human connection and that human collaboration of doesn't have to be this chiseled laid out, you know, word vomit, 50 minute sessions of 300 ideas. It's let's sit and let's have a conversation and allow that to take us to that deeper level, which is something we don't do enough of. I mean, whether professionally or, or personally anymore, it's, it's a, it's a lost art and and, I think there's,
0: there's real value there. And, and, and it's efficient. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, when, when I took, when I took, when I took 30 teachers away for three days, um, they learned, it was, 20 years worth of PD. Yes. Because the bells weren't ringing and they didn't have to pick their kids up from daycare and they weren't, you know, um, so it was like, it's infinitely more efficient when, when, and there's all this concern about teacher retention. I can't fix everything that ails schools, but we've had teachers who have publicly exclaimed, I I was going to quit. I'm going back now because I, 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 the spark inside me is being reignited about why I became a teacher and what what I'm capable of doing and what the kids can do. And this is going to be fun next year because I'm going to make it that way. So all the sorts of ideas that have been swimming around in this conversation, maybe without any kind of <laughs> coherent connection, <laughs> um, kind of come together in this, this event that we've done for 14 years. And, you know, like I said, it's, it's, we never know from year to year whether it'll ever happen again. Cause it's, it is, it is the work of, of lunatics. And it makes no sense um, to do it in a world where, you know, everything is advertiser driven and based on the latest hype and um, you know, and it's high tech and it's low tech and it's folks from all over the world collaborating on stuff and learning together and getting a cup of coffee and having conversations in the hallway and staying up late working on a programming project or just making a tricycle out of cardboard um, and everything in between and and then they think oh well this was created in 24 hours in a in a meeting room maybe my classroom could be a little bit more like this right right
1: i love it well, I appreciate it, and we will get in the show notes linked to all your work and the books and and materials, so people can go explore, you know. But I always like to end, you know, if someone's listening in and they're at a red light and they and they want to, you know, peruse and find stuff, you know, where where are some of the best spots um, for them to uh, reach out and 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 learn more about
0: you and what
1: you got going on?
0: ConstructingModernKnowledge.com, dot com, ProfessorGaryStager dot com, dot com. And just, you can email me from any of those places or just gary at stager.org. I love it.
1: Gary, thank you. This has been such a pleasure and an honor to be able to have this conversation with you. I truly feel like uh, I got an infinite amount of my own PD here having the chance to have you on the podcast. So I really appreciate you uh, carving out time out of your your busy day and the work that you do to uh, have this conversation with me for not just me, but for the audience uh, of the show. So thank you so much.
0: Thanks, Aaron. I really appreciate it. Anytime. Hey, 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 chaos. Woke up at six o'clock in the morning, chilling with coffee mugs, me and coffee chugs, talking education all across the nation, pushing boundaries, thinking innovation. Hey, chaos.